Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, policies and events that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and I am very happy to be joined for our first normal podcast of the new year by a star-studded cast to discuss the breakdown in diplomatic relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia and what it means for the region, for the world and for European foreign policy. Um, First up is uh, Christian Koch, who is the director of the Gulf Research Center Foundation uh, based in Geneva. Secondly, we have uh, Mark Lynch, who is Professor of Political Science at George Washington University and also a Senior Associate at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And finally, my colleague, Ellie Garenmeyer, who is from our Middle East and North Africa program, leading our work on Iran. So, um, Christian, maybe you can kick off and tell us exactly what's happening and why uh, Saudi Arabia has uh, launched into this uh, regional escalation with such gusto? Sure, thanks, Mark. Um, Well, I think the the reaction of cutting the diplomatic relations uh, is a direct result of the attack on the Saudi embassy in Tehran and on the consulate in Mashhad. Uh, I think the actions by the Saudis to execute uh, 47 uh, convicted uh, uh, persons in the kingdom was seen primarily as a uh, domestic issue. Uh, They expected some response from Iran, but not to the degree of these attacks that happened on the embassy. And uh, given that the Saudis were simply extremely worried about the security of their own personnel, uh, they felt they could take no other step but to cut these these relations off. Uh, And it's simply the consequence now uh, of a uh, year-long increasing feud with Iran uh, about the future of the region uh, and about who has really a say-so when it comes to the Middle East. So, Ellie, how's, how does it look from Tehran? What do you think uh, the reaction has been so far to, uh, well, both to the execution, what do you think was going on behind the, the, the crowds? How much of it was actually orchestrated by the Iranian regime? How do they see things moving forward sure mark um well i'd like to start off with slightly disagreeing with um the analysis (laughs) before me just to say i think that primarily i agree that the executions were done for uh, domestic reasons but undoubtedly there was uh, a prediction um that could have been very easily calculated that this would have caused a rift within an already terrible state of Iran, um, Saudi bilateral relations, and also inject a new layer of crisis into a region that's already increasingly divided along sectarian lines. And unfortunately, the the actors in Tehran essentially exasperated this crisis even further through their actions. Uh, I think there's been provocation on on both sides, uh, and there's blame to go around for that. Um, Maybe not equally, but certainly on on both Riyadh and uh, and Tehran's side, which led uh, to to the escalation to um, 
break off diplomatic t- uh, ties. From the Iranian side, what we've had for the last few days is essentially everyone uh, except the Supreme Leader so far across the leadership condemning the embassy uh, attack. Um, uh, President Rouhani of Iran has come out very strongly against those uh, who've attacked, calling them criminals, extremists, radicals. And what this has really exposed is the domestic dynamic within Iran, uh, exposing the rifts between the hardliners, the ultra-hardliners, as some people call them, and the Rouhani government as they lead up to a critical election period next month. And it's also damaged Rouhani's policy of... um, really trying to engage with uh, Gulf nations uh, across the board after the nuclear deal. Uh, Zarif was, uh, former Mr. Zarif was very keen to make his outreach to the Gulf uh, partners a priority and I think that has been uh, served a setback for now as well. But I think now, uh, I mean today we've heard reports and it's still to be substantiated um, but uh, the Iranian foreign ministry has said that there has been an attempted target on their embassy in Sana'a in Yemen uh, from a Saudi airstrike. So this could further escalate. They've said that they're going to petition. This is a formal complaint to the UN today. Um, And now, I mean, that's again another escalation of this. I think that for now, though, um, we can go into this policy implications for Europe later. But I think all sides from the Europeans are trying to engage both Riyadh and Tehran to uh, to have cooler heads prevailing in this, to de-escalate. So, Mark, you're a kind of neutral um, <laughs> figure sitting between the the Iranian and the, the Saudi perspectives. <laughs> who, who do you agree with? Well, it's interesting because I, I think that one of the things we've seen is that the uh, the the attack on the embassy was clearly a major own goal for for the Iranians. I think when you had the execution of Sheikh Nimr. Um, I, I, I disagree that this was just a domestic thing. I mean, I think the Saudi leadership knew perfectly well that this was going to cross a red line. This was something that hadn't been done before. They knew there was going to be a major regional um, uh, repercussions to this. Uh, there's no way they could have not known that. Um, but it's really quite striking how quickly Iran squandered the benefit that came to them from that. The burning of the embassy immediately changed the narrative from this uh, the Saudi provocation of executing a major Shia figure to this uh, Iranian violation of international law and international conventions. And so now the, the Security Council took it up and the, um, the GCC and everyone. I mean, it was really quite a, a, a roller coaster there in terms of the, the two separate things. And I think um, that, that so it's useful to have the, the two perspectives against each other because I think they are two very different things. I think it'd be good to, to think about what it means for the regional dynamics. But maybe before we get onto that, I think one of the interesting things that came out of all you, the three sets of reactions to this is a question of, of really how the relationship between domestic and foreign policy, because obviously in terms of the national interests of both Saudi and Iran, neither have served their national interests particularly well in a kind of strategic sense. But these are two of the most difficult to understand, obscure, um, factional uh, political systems in the world. Um, and neither of them are particularly unitary. So there are different interests at play who are fighting off against these different things. I mean, how much does the sort of factional politics explain what's going on? Because clearly in Saudi Arabia, the country's going for a very tricky phase, um, you know, low oil price, the 
kind of succession. They're, I mean, there are a lot of kind of complicated things going on there. And from Iran, it is a, a system which is perpetually uh, has lots of different factions that are trying to get the upper hand on each other. And um, uh, I mean, h- how much of that kind of factional politics explains both the, the, the Saudi decision to go ahead with the execution, to provoke Iran, and then the kind of Iranian uh, counter-reaction? Well, I mean, I think from a, from a leadership perspective, I don't think there's that much factionalism within Saudi Arabia. I think there's a consensus, basically, on, on many of these issues, especially as far as, as Iran is concerned. I mean, not only the Saudi leadership, but uh, also the majority of the population see Iran as something that is a threat to Saudi Arabia. So there is consensus on, on that front, for no, sure. No, no, but it's a way of getting legitimacy in a tricky... Provoking a conflict with Saudi with Iran is a way of getting domestic legitimacy, which might be challenged Absol- as a result. It absolutely plays of, well at the moment, yes. Because so it's a, a, it's a surrogate for... So therefore it is domestic politics that's driving it. It is, it is domestic it. politics, yeah. But I think you're right, though. The two things are linked together, though, because there's the domestic problems from the, from the low oil price and the, the really quite uh, ambitious package of reforms that the government is is proposing to carry out and uh, but, uh, but but you're right uh, this has been extremely popular at home and it's helped to rally Sunni support and to rally uh, kind of domestic sectarian support for that while also distracting attention from things that were not so popular the the new taxes the new economic changes um, and also the the war in Yemen which again is both a foreign policy issue and a domestic issue after going in with great enthusiasm uh, 10 months ago, now you're looking at this seemingly endless quagmire and people are starting to ask questions. Um, you've got the failure to prevent the Iranian nuclear deal. You've got the endless things in Syria. And so it, it's, it's a way of saying, let's change the subject and let's look at things that actually you can get excited about you, that, and to rebuild support for uh, a government which is going through some pretty difficult, uh, some pretty difficult times. So, so I just agree with what you said before, not so much about the factional part, but about those interesting intersections between the domestic and the foreign policy calculations. Although I have to say that, I mean, on the, in the Yemen issue, it's still... In, inside Saudi Arabia, they still don't see it as a quagmire as such. I think, I think there's right. still a lot of support for the Yemen war. And I think Saudi Arabia basically will argue with you, well, we have achieved what were our two key strategic objectives, which was one, prevent the Houthi from takeover of Yemen, and they've achieved that, and B, to prevent Iran from trying to resupply the Houthis with their blockade. So this will be the argument you hear in Riyadh on the Yemen thing. So what about the Tehran side? I mean, who benefits from a, a kind of major deterioration of the of the relationship with Saudi? Well, I think uh, very much uh, like Saudi, the, the actions in Iran have a lot to do with local politics. And what we've seen is essentially the hardliners get a win-win. On one hand, they have managed to um, expose this rift uh, between the hardliners who are now seen as really the security having the monopoly over the security within Iran in in the run-up to the elections, which are highly securitized environments anyway. And when you say hardliners, do you want to be a bit more specific? Um, Yeah, sure, I will be. So we've we've had these attacks before in Iran. This is not the first time. We've had it with the British embassy in 2011. We've had it with um, certain elements uh, during the 2009 
connections with revolutions, uh, with the street protests essentially being cracked down. And uh, Rouhani actually in his speeches has made uh, comments to these factions, which are they, they're called the ultra radicals, which are not even under the, the hardline political factions, which uh, which can essentially be unleashed at times when political statements want to be made against uh, against uh, the opposition groups in Iran. This this time being uh, essentially they being opposed to Rouhani and his camp and what they're trying to do with the elections coming up in parliament. Uh, but I think also in another way. This hardline camp has managed to damage uh, the administration's, uh, per- uh, you know, perceived views of wanting to help with regional diplomacy efforts, wanting to help being seen as a constructive actor, uh, because as you know, many people have commentated, uh, how can Iran be expected to now live up to, for example, a nuclear agreement if it can't even control the situation at home? So I think it has exposed the Rouhani administration to certain um, um, negative repercussions for sure. But I think also to, to to just comment also on the Saudi side, I think there has been a very delicate balance between the marriage between the Wahhabi factions in Saudi Arabia and the leadership. And the, the, the reforms that the, the, the House of Saudi is trying to push through is not always popular. And so this move was also a distraction from some of that. And also, let's not forget that uh, alongside Sheikh Nimr, there were uh, there were Sunni extremists who were also executed. And so the question is being posed, well, if we're going to um, execute all these hardline Sunni uh, extremists, we're going to also have to do the same with what within Saudi Arabia is conceived as the Shia extremists. Now, of course, many uh, within the West and certainly Iran don't see that as being justified, but it's certainly been a popular uh, policy at home. So, Mark, maybe you can help take us a bit beyond this, because in in one sense, the fact that Tehran and Riyadh are not getting on very well isn't exactly new to the region. Um, They've been fighting four proxy wars against each other, it is the kind of single mobilising element of domestic politics on, on both sides. It's given both countries a new sense of, of mission and purpose in the world and has actually uh, contributed to a kind of post-American um, uh, Middle East in a way because they, they are the, the main drivers for, for regional politics. Does what's happened over the last few days have any kind of big impact on that i mean what what is going to change as a result of this latest uh, spat well partly that depends on whether it escalates i mean if you actually do escalate to a hot war then of course all bets are off but i don't see much sign of that i, I actually see this just as another episode in in a very long-running uh political competition and you know it's certainly striking and getting a lot of energy but not really fundamentally new um, but that doesn't mean that it's not significant, though, because I mean, I would point to at least three different things. One is that from not even the moment of, but well before the, uh, the nuclear deal was signed with Iran, the major emphasis of, of critics of the deal, including Saudis, Israelis and others, has been not so much to stop the deal, which I think they figured out pretty early on they couldn't do, but to strip it of any larger transformational purpose or meaning. So you'll have the nuclear deal, but you don't want to see that turn into new relations between the United States and Iran. You don't want to see Iran rehabilitated or you know welcomed into regional order. So these kinds of conflicts are very useful for that. 
because what they do is they restore conflict, they keep the distance, they make it extremely awkward for the United States or Europe to have good relations with Iran. So I think there's a real political uh, purpose there, not just for this one incident, but kind of across the board, the way you see the, these confrontations. Um, Christoph, you talked before about the, the perception of being um, surrounded and all, and all this, everything he said before, I think is right. I mean, in terms of how Saudi perceives the situation. Um, but there's also just this question of almost the mirror imaging of it. And it's interesting, you know, you hear the, the two different perspectives. The, uh, the Saudis view themselves as being surrounded by Iran on the march. Iran sees itself in many ways as being surrounded by its enemies on the march. It's this very um, kind of toxic sense where everybody feels like they are the weak and aggrieved and threatened party at a time when both are in many ways stronger than they've ever been. And it's a very, this is, uh, for political scientists, this is pretty much the most dangerous kind of strategic situation because of this real mismatch in the perceptions on the both sides. Um, they might not make rational choices. So what's the third? Well, the third is just the, it's just the sectarianism itself. Okay. I mean, it's easy to kind of raise these things and, and, you know, kind of gin things up in order to win some political points. But people out there on the street really believe this stuff. And it gets it's much easier to make people hate each other than it is to get them to to ramp things down. And so I think that across the board over the last 10 years in the Middle East, you've seen this you know, steadily increasing sectarianism, which is just harder and harder to control. And um, so I think there's this sense of like playing with fire. And so that's the thing where even though this might not be the intention of either side, it's all different variations on the theme of things could spin out of control yeah. um, in, in the region the way it is right now. So um, it'd be good to, to kind of think through how well those different strands are actually working but maybe um uh before we do that we can have a little excursion into the the whole question of of syria and the the vienna talks because that was the the big story about the middle east before mm -hmm. the end of last year was actually not about the local actors it was about <laughs> the real external actors it was russia's intervention it was the talks in vienna it's the first time that people are kind of sat down around a table and that's obviously something that a lot of the participants in Vienna were not enthusiastic participants and a lot of people wanting it to, to fail um, the first thing that happened when relations broke down is people declared the the death of Vienna again I mean do you think that um, Vienna will survive or do you think that um, uh, things are going to get so difficult that having uh, all of the players around a table and kind of talking to each other is 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 going to be impossible if they are there their contact will be so kind of ritualistic that it will be devoid of any content well i mean i think that the saudis were initially of course not very happy uh, when the sort of the international community got iran uh, onto the table because yeah. they simply feel that uh, you know, Iran is the main supporter of the Assad regime, and, and the, the main reason Assad is still around is because of of Iranian support. So they see Iran as being the big obstacle. Um, but now we we heard that the Saudi foreign minister has come out and said that this this the current uh, disagreements and, and and the break off of relations with Tehran uh, is not going to uh, affect uh, the Syria uh, issue. Uh, and I think the you know I think I could not. I don't necessarily see the process breaking down completely. I think there is still, despite the current disagreements, there's still an interest by both sides 
not to get, let this situation escalate uncontrollably. Uh, I think because both sides know that then there are some real costs to be borne. At the moment, you can have these break-off of diplomatic relations and you can have all the, the rhetoric flying back and forth uh, and you can continue your, your proxy wars going on in other fields. Uh, but if this were to escalate further, then it could really be damaging in the end of the day to both sides because then you're introducing factors where you don't know exactly what's going to be the result or what's going to be, where is it going to be heading. So there is somehow an interest to to keep things a little bit under control and maybe it's just going to be we're going to see that on the Syrian issue issue where the talks will go ahead uh, it's going to be difficult enough anyways to come to any sort of agreement so uh, it's not a big loss if you just go because you can always say well uh, nothing happened anyways in in, uh, in the end and what do you think about it? well i think I, we've had similar comments from Iran, that they are going to stick to the Vienna process, that they're not going to walk away. And I think um, either side would actually would have never walked away to begin with because they don't want to be seen as an active spoiler of this process that's finally got some sort of a kickstart uh, before the end of the year. But I do think that the recent escalation, at least in the next round and, the, and probably a couple of rounds after that, is going to make it much more likely that both Riyadh and Tehran stick to their maximalist positions which makes progress even more difficult than it was before. So what's really important here, probably for the West and in the Russian interest as well, is to try and before those rounds to have you know private consultations with both sides to push them and urge them to to not let this escalation affect the necessary compromises that are needed to make a settlement. Um, and I think that's probably the immediate goal for most Western actors at the moment. So, Mark, if we go back to your, the three things that you laid out there, I mean, the, the kind of persistent fear of uh, lots of, well, certainly of the Saudis, but of many other people was that uh, Obama was engaging in a kind of slow pivot <laughs> from one set of allies in Tel Aviv and in Riyadh <laughs> to to another set of allies in Moscow and Tehran in terms of the, the regional dynamics. And that was definitely where things were kind of headed before this has happened. How has this kind of affected those bigger picture relationships? I don't think that's what was going on, but you're right that that perception w was out there quite a bit. I think fundamentally there, there really is a misalignment in how Obama would like to see the region uh, ordered and the way powerful actors in the region would like to see it ordered. I mean, the Saudis and the Israelis were very happy with the way things were before Obama. They had this coalition uh, that was containing Iran. They had, you know, mostly the full support of the United States with very little pressure for internal reform or to change their policies. I mean, things were going quite well. Um, and you know the, they blame Obama for for the problems that have come since. I, I think it's I think it's unfair, but I but I think that um, the, there's no question that there's a really profound gap between them. I mean, the, to put it you know as, as bluntly as possible, I mean the Saudis have basically been have dedicated their foreign policy for the last five years to trying to destroy everything Obama has wanted to achieve. I mean that's basically the way it looks in Washington. Um, he wanted to try and have the Arab Spring lead to democracy. The Saudis did everything they could to trash those transitions. 
He wanted to prevent the war in uh, in Syria, and the Saudis and their allies wanted to pour pour money and guns in and, and try and overthrow Assad. He wanted to get the nuclear deal, and the Saudis and their allies didn't want a nuclear deal. I mean, so it's there. I mean, so you, this isn't just like a minor little like we're not supporting the Saudis enough. Um, it's more that there's a really a fundamental divide over over what they want to do. And so I actually don't think that the conflict is irrational in that sense. It's not just because, you know, there's a bad personal relationship between Obama and the king. I think this really is profoundly different visions of what they want the Middle East to look like. Um, but what happens now? I mean, in what, I don't think any I don't think any real fundamental change, to be perfectly honest. I, I don't think Obama's going to tear up the, the, the nuclear deal that he just spent years not. trying to develop. Um, if anything, I think the recent escalation has made Iran push to implement the deal as soon as possible because they precisely want to insulate it from any external issues uh, that prevent, you know, U.S. sanctions and EU sanctions from uh, lifting as as agreed. I think basically a, a neutral position trying to mediate and de-escalate is the way to go. Not neutral in the sense of we treat Iran and Saudi Arabia equally. Saudi Arabia is an ally with a long historic background, and you have to take that seriously. But I think the U.S. has a major strategic interest in seeing the nuclear deal achieved and trying to build some kind of regional security architecture, as you put it, which includes Iran. If you don't get that, then the, the whole thing's been wasted. If there was one thing that I would like to see the U.S. and Europe do, it would be to put real pressure on Saudi Arabia to end the war in Yemen. Uh, it's. Uh, I doesn't think, sound I th very, from, a, from, a, from Riyadh's perspective, what you're suggesting doesn't sound very neutral. Sounds like a bit of a shift. <laughs> well, you know, again, it gets back to what kind of region are we trying to create? Yeah. And if you're trying to create a new one, then, yeah, it's going to look revisionist and it's not going to look status quo. Ellie, what do you think? Well, we, uh, should, we should take your own side. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. no maybe, maybe a couple of things that we were brainstorming this morning, actually, in our team was, uh, you know, four immediate responses, I would say, particularly from the European side is first, preserve the space for diplomacy, whether it's on Syria or in Iran, and use that special privilege link that Europeans have with both Riyadh and Tehran, which the US lacks in, in the sense with Tehran, uh, to really both uh, push both sides to a pragmatic pr uh, position on these things. And, you know, part of the uh, joys of having an alliance is that you can be upfront with your allies about the costs of certain actions. And that is, I think, what Mark is alluding to, you know, really uh, setting out the costs that this war would potentially have for, for not only the region, but Saudi Arabia itself. Um, secondly, I think um, the Europeans, uh, through their contacts with not only the GCC states, but the wider region like Pakistan and Turkey, should avoid countries polarizing around either the circle of Iran or the circle of Saudis, because that's going to make any type of a future security architecture even more difficult to reach than it already is. Thirdly, this concept of sectarianism that we've been coming back to for m many years now, uh, the region has some fragile political systems already that are really going to be susceptible to this, like Lebanon and Iraq. And uh, the West can do um, some, uh, make some steps to preserve the guarantees that are in place in these already fragile structures to prevent them from completely falling apart. And fourthly, uh, for the Europeans in particular, they're going to have to buckle up and prepare for a much worse migration and refugee problem. Okay, so this is the first podcast of 2016. If we, when we come back at the first podcast of 2017, in one word, which of these two countries are going to look uh, stronger? 
Um, do you want to go first? <laughs> who comes out who on looks, top? Who looks stronger? <laughs> I, I don't think either one of no, them no. is going to look stronger. Uh, you got to choose. They're going to look the same. <laughs> the same as when? Same as now. Yes. The same as now. I think same as now as well. No, that was enlightening. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, we can't be more. So our listeners will be thrilled with that response. Well, that brings a fascinating discussion uh, to an end. We're obviously going to watch how this uh, regional crisis continues developing and also what the, the policy responses are. We have one more thing to do in this podcast, which is our, our bookshelf segment. And So, Ellie, what, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? I'll be very brief. It's a, a short story by Kafka from early 1900s <laughs> called The Metamorphosis, which is about a, a chap who wakes up one day and is uh, turned into a, a bug, essentially an insect, and is slowly trying to accept the realities around him. And I felt like that reflected a lot of my work in the Middle East. So <laughs> that's, that's my one for the books. What about you, Mark? You've just released your... Uh, book awards on on uh, Middle East and but I'll choose I'll choose a different one yeah. though. Okay, I'll choose one of last year's winners. I, I think a, a good book for everyone to read right now would be uh, Toby Matheson's book, uh, The Other Saudis, which is a history of Shia in, uh, in in Saudi Arabia. Very relevant right now. Probably the single best book I've seen giving kind of a really good detailed background. Okay, what about you, Chris? Well, there's a lot of unread books uh, sitting around. <laughs> That's mostly it. But uh, it's a little embarrassing. I mean, the, the book that I'm really trying to get into, uh, but I don't actually know the exact title or the author. It's a French scholar, and it talks about car drifting in Riyadh, uh, and it's sort of a combination Pascal, uh, of... Pascal Manoret. That's, that's it, and I yeah. think it's a fascinating What's look the book at... Called? Uh, Pascal Manoret, um, Joyriding in Riyadh, or okay. something like that. Right. <laughs> and it's a whole combination of urban planning, uh, architecture, uh, geography, and political opposition, and how that all plays out in the domestic setting of Riyadh. And it's, yeah, I think a wonderful it's a book. very interesting book. Well, the perfect complement to that is uh, what I'm going to recommend, which is uh, not a book, but it's a film which I saw recently, which is the Tehran Taxi, which will give you a very good sense of, of uh, both the kind of internal politics in Iran at the moment, but also uh, what, uh, I mean, it's an incredibly funny, uh, kind of moving and, and powerful insight into both the kind of... Uh, the, the humour, but also the dark side of, of contemporary uh, Iran. So thank you very much to, to all three of you for an absolutely fascinating discussion. We're going to put links to all of the things, including those whose titles we couldn't quite remember, <laughs> at our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. And from Christian Koch, uh, Mark Lynch, Aaron, Ellie Garanmeyer, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye for now. The editor of our podcast is Katerina Botella-Tinaro, and our researcher is Ulrike Franco. <laughs>